You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed in Markham, in Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan, in Stowville, in Woodbridge, in Unionville. This is the feed on 1059 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, the events, and the stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, how COVID-19 forced some big changes in many workplaces, canines with careers, St. John Ambulance Therapy Dogs, and a few tech purchase tips for back to school. Over the last few months, our focus has been on the pandemic. And while we continue to bring you the stories about how this virus has changed all of our lives, we begin today with a tragedy of a different sort, the deadly explosion in Lebanon. Tina Cortez with how Canada is responding to this disaster. Richard Morgan is the executive director of the Humanitarian Coalition. Before we focus specifically on Beirut, Richard, tell us about your work and your group. Well, thanks so much, Tina, for having uh, having us uh, on the air today. So the Humanitarian Coalition brings together 12 of Canada's leading international agencies. Uh, they include many that uh, that your listeners would already know, such as World Vision and Plan, Care, and Oxfam. But they also include agencies across the country who specialize in humanitarian response. Now, on August 4th, an explosion in Beirut left at least 100 dead, thousands injured, and more than 300,000 homeless. How is the Humanitarian Coalition working with these other agencies and the federal government to help? That's a great question. So one of the, uh, the the most encouraging things is that many of our member agencies were already on the ground. Some of our member agencies have had decades of experience already working in Lebanon, so they began responding immediately. And it became quite clear that the needs on the ground were going to be really significant. Um, as you noted, uh, the explosion killed hundreds, wounded thousands, and left 300,000 homeless. But before the explosion took place, Lebanon was already in considerable difficulty because of a number of crises coming together. It was facing some significant economic challenges. It was facing the challenge of hosting almost 2 million refugees from Syria. Uh, and, of course, uh, food insecurity was growing, and uh, there was also the uh, the dilemma of COVID. And in the midst of all of these challenges uh, that already had Lebanon high on our list of concerns for our member agencies, the blast uh, shook the country to its core. So how are the agencies and the federal government working together right now? So one of the things that uh, we, we did was to reach out uh, in partnership with the Canadian government. The Humanitarian Coalition has worked with the Canadian government in the past to help mobilize Canadians to respond respond to crises like these and has worked with uh, the Humanitarian Coalition and the members for a number of years. So the way they're helping right now is they've established a matching fund uh, that uh, recently was revised to be a total envelope of up to $5 million. So that means that for every donation that Canadians make to uh, the Humanitarian Coalition directly or to one of our member agencies uh, that are received before August 24th, each of those donations will be matched dollar for dollar to enable our member agencies to respond on the ground. So the support of the Canadian government uh, has been uh, invaluable in helping to communicate to the public how important and how serious this crisis is, and also to uh, to let Canadians know that they can stretch and make a difference uh, by donating to our Lebanon crisis appeal. Before we talk about specifically where the donations go, you mentioned that you have teams and agencies already on the ground in Beirut. What exactly are they doing? 
So it's a range of things depending on, on each agency and uh, responding to the needs. Often in humanitarian crises, the, the, the most obvious things that, that most would expect are things like water and sanitation, uh, hygiene, uh, shelter is a huge need right now, uh, psychosocial support, there are children who have been separated from their families that are being brought together, uh, food packs, uh, primary emergency uh, healthcare support are all among the things that our members are doing, including uh, support for uh, for people who will have now been wounded from the blast, who've had amputations, who've lost limbs, who need specialized support to enable them to uh, to move forward, to return to their home, and to uh, prosthetic devices, all, all manner of things. So there's a huge range of of things that our, our member agencies are doing. You know, again, from food and water to hygiene kits, uh, household shelter. Uh, psychosocial support, uh, and family reunification. How do we know that our donations are going to those who need it most? The uh, members of the Humanitarian Coalition all have to meet very high standards in terms of their the quality of their humanitarian work. The uh, one of the things that many listeners will have will have heard about is the is the enormous problems on the ground with the government in in Lebanon. Uh, so our member agencies do not work uh, do not fund flow any funding through the Lebanese government. We only work with long term partners uh, that we already have on the ground. And as I said, some of our agencies have been in in Lebanon for decades uh, and have long established uh, relationships with people on the ground. So. Uh, High-quality high agencies is a starting point. Our membership has strict criteria for who can become a member of the Humanitarian Coalition. Long-standing quality of work, adherence to the highest standards of, of humanitarian response, uh, and trusted partners of the government, of the Canadian government. How can our listeners donate or help? Uh, one of the, the best ways that, that people can help is by actually donating cash. Uh, it's the easiest way to get funding into the country to the agencies on the ground and so they can go to our website at www.together.ca to make a donation online they can call us at 1-855-461-2154 and they can make a donation over the phone and another great way they can help is just by sharing uh, information online through social media so that uh, more Canadians are aware of, uh, of how significant uh, this blast has been uh, and its implications for the people of Lebanon. Richard, if you can, one more time, let's repeat the phone number and where people can donate online as well. Thanks, Tina. So the website is www.together.ca and the phone number is one 855 4612154. Richard Morgan, Executive Director of the Humanitarian Coalition. Thank you for joining us on the feed and thank you for your work. Thank you so much for your time today, Tina. In times of great need anywhere in the world, Global Medic is at the ready to provide disaster relief and humanitarian aid. The need for both is tremendous and urgent in Beirut. Raul Singh joins us now with the immediate plans for the Lebanese city in crisis. Thank you, Raul, for giving us a minute of your very busy time. Can you explain your priorities? What is your strategy in terms of helping the people of Beirut? The key strategy is in the emergency response phase is to get people things like clean drinking water and emergency food. Because you know the grain pier next to the port is damaged. That's 85% of their grain's gone. The country's got about 30 days supply of wheat. 
and food. And 85% of the food for that country gets imported anyway. So you're going to see a severe market crunch. So the key for us is to push in more and more and more emergency food just to keep people fed. There are hundreds of thousands of people left homeless as a result of this. How can you manage to make a dent in terms of aid and assistance? So that's probably the second phase of what we really need to tackle is getting people back into their homes because those buildings aren't completely destroyed. They're just uninhibitable, right? Like the glass is shattered, the boom and the blast would have like damaged a lot of electronics. So just getting that rebuilt, but that has to be done. But right now, what I'm so worried about is their economy and getting people fed and getting more emergency food in. So how do you do that? I know you've got family emergency kits and you've already mentioned emergency food kits. So where are they coming from? What do they consist of? And how are they going to get to Beirut and be distributed? The family emergency kit, imagine a box, got a water unit and then a solar light, hygiene items and Pedialyte. The emergency food kit, imagine a bucket with a seal and a lid and a handle. And inside that bucket, it's about 10 kilograms of like rice and chickpeas and green lentils and red lentils, all the stuff that we know folks in Beirut love to eat, healthy for them, they're familiar with. There's two ways that we get it in. First is by air. So Air Canada takes some up for us. Other airlines take them up for us. They put it into the region and they fly into uh, the airport in Lebanon. Our teams clear it and then hand it out because it's in kit form. It can go right to the family, one kit of each. We also put a back-end supply chain in by sea where we fill containers. So much more aid can come in. That comes up to the port in Tripoli. And it's just a matter of running that supply chain. Remember, this is a country that brings in a ton of food. And because it's been in such economic crisis, the better buying power is to not put money in, lose it, lose the local currency, which would devalue by 40%. It's just to push more food in from the outside. We are also dealing with a pandemic. How does that factor into what you're going to be doing and how the, the incredibly courageous people of Beirut are going to get through this? It's going to slow everything down. You can't do mass distributions and have people standing next to each other and big lineups. And so, you know, you're going to have to slow everything down, space it out. So it's going to be harder, slower to deal with, which just means you have to give people more, right? You don't want them coming back to you every single day for the aid they need. You want to give them kits that'll last two to three weeks, right? So that way you can space things out. So that'll be a massive factor. We've worked in Beirut since 06, since that last war. Our partners there are great. We've trained them. They're medics. They did explosive remnants war. They're used to unsafe conditions, so they understand about safety, and they're gonna they're gonna figure out the aspects of how to do this. But everything will be a lot slower than normal. And have your partners that you've just mentioned? Are they okay? Yeah, physically we're good. Like everyone's good physically, emotionally. It's it's a tough toll, right? The city exploded. You had several hundred killed. You've got thousands injured. They got to repair those hospitals in order to get primary health care back. Our guys and gals have been going nonstop, so they're fatigued. I worry about them emotionally, you know, because these are their the countrymen that have been affected. It's hard to watch, you know, folks lose their homes. The thing is, because this country's been an economic crisis for a while, and they've had protests in the streets, and their dollars devalued, and buying power's down, and unemployment's up, it was really expensive to buy food before. Now it's just out of reach. And especially with the market going down, it's absolutely out of reach. So it's hard for our responders to see that level of need. I mean, they know they're doing well at giving thousands of families this food, but man, it takes a toll, right? Because this is your countrymen that are affected. And also it needs to be continued and it needs to be something that they can depend on. Is that correct? I mean, it can't just be sort of a one-off and then everyone sort of turns away and goes on to the next crisis. You know, in a perfect world, humanitarian assistance is this hand up and it's immediate and it just gets you through, it fills the gap and then you don't need it anymore. That's, that's a perfect world, right? 
In this crisis, that's not going to happen because it's not like tomorrow people can go back into those homes and they probably didn't have jobs to begin with because of what's happened with the economy. So it's not like this is going to fix itself overnight and the food price is going to just get worse and worse and worse because of the buying power and then the fact that all that product's lost and the market's affected. So this is going to be a longer term crisis and that rebuilding part is going to hurt. But the economic stimulus here, it may be a good thing because it could create jobs which could help turn around that economy. But the key is just about getting the right aid to the folks that need it. The fact that the government, corrupt or not, is collapsing, whether it's by choice or, or being pushed out, does that make it easier to lend assistance, to offer humanitarian aid? Anytime you're in a complex emergency like this, it's hard. You don't want to be paying things at the border. You don't want to be paying customs. You don't want to be paying bribes. You've got to fight through them. A strong central government helps you fight through that. A weak central government can also help you fight through that, right? In this case, because everything's collapsing around you, hopefully humanity shines through and people understand that, you know, you're bringing this stuff in to help so you won't get stalled at the border and, and fight. But I mean, that happens in every country. Uh, the government collapse as well is going to be difficult in seeing how the recovery starts are going to happen because people are pledging money. You know, people can't wait, right? They can't wait six months to restart again. They need to be focused on getting those hospitals up and running again. They need to focus on getting food to folks, getting them the clean water they need, and get that rebuilding started like this week, next week. So I am worried about the government collapse, but I mean, you've such a unified mass of people and pushing in one direction that I'm very confident that you'll start seeing some movement. You've been in the region since 2006. Tell me about the human spirit and what you have noticed about their will to live, their will to survive, and their will to, at some point, thrive again. Yeah, it's an interesting place. I mean, I led our first team in. I was coming in on a rescue boat that was chartered by the UN. We came in from Cyprus right into the port in Beirut, that very port that's now decimated. And then we, we, we took our convoy and we went south. The French military were coming in. The Lebanese military were coming in. There was a war going on with Israel in the south. And I mean, I remember going into those villages and working with folks. We were there to keep people from coming home and getting them, you know, not to go back into their homes. We would give them primary health care at the clinics, get them clean water, while the, the army teams would come through and just sweep for the explosive remnants of war. But I remember the sheer resilience in folks. Like, they have a joy about them. They've had tough lives for 40 years, man, on and off civil war, regional insecurities. Like, I mean, but, but they've got a joie de vivre, you know. I mean, they'll push through, and, and this might be their unifying moment because everyone's affected, and it might be their unifying moment where they just get over the top and they rebuild a better society. Raul, you founded Global Medic in 1998. Have you ever seen anything like this? It reminds me of an earthquake, right, because anytime we're in an earthquake scene like Haiti, you know, people are like, man, the bomb went off. Well, in this case, it's literally the bomb going off. The good thing about this disaster is it's unifying the country, right? And it's unifying people. Uh, and it creates this opportunity for that stimulus. So I'd rather focus on the positive uh, of, of what can come up instead of focusing on that negative of this. And this is a terrible thing that's happened. But, uh, you know, it, they have an opportunity to just do better and to rebuild and, you know, have better wealth distribution and better opportunities and help that economy. So, I mean, I've seen a lot of disasters. I'm, I'm hopeful this one will, will rebound better than many other places, but, you know, that remains to be. I've known you for decades and ever the optimist, and I appreciate everything you do. What can we do here at 105.9 The Region and listeners and followers in York Region? What can we do to help you? 
Well, a couple things. I mean, you can you can go onto our website, globalmedic.ca. You can uh, you can fund us and help us, you know, help rebuild in, in Beirut and get people emergency food. You know what? I get money's tight during COVID. Even if you just follow us on social media or reamplify and retweet what we're doing, just to other people get the word out, that helps us keep everybody in Beirut in your thoughts. And and let's remember, even though this media story falls out of the news in a couple of days, there's a lot of needs there, and we're going to still be there helping meet those needs. Raul Singh, Global Medic, thank you for joining us on the feed. Hey, thanks so much. Mohamed Faki is a proud Lebanese Canadian, a very successful business person, and someone who continues to give to people in crisis here and around the world. The devastating explosion in Beirut on August 4th hit close to home for Mohamed, literally and figuratively. He joins us now with his plans on how to help. Thank you for being with us on the feed. We spoke the day after the explosion. You were so concerned about the ones you love in Beirut, family, friends, and employees. How are they now? Oh, very much better, and thank you very much for having me and for covering the stories in Lebanon. It's very important for us that you do. They're much better now. Uh, physically, uh, we moved them out of our home, and we moved them to an apartment in the mountains of Lebanon. When you are speaking with family and friends, what are they telling you about what's going on around them and how people are feeling right in the middle of the aftermath? Well, it's not the aftermath yet in full because they're still seeing a lot of uh, devastated uh, families, a lot of people homeless, a lot of people living uh, in schools, in corridors, people that they cannot get to places in hospitals to the, to the combination from COVID to the explosion to what's happening a huge 300,000 people without homes. Uh, people have no place to cook and to eat, and there is a very, very uh, huge problem on short supply on food. As you know, was the port, and that's the main port where all the food, the wheat, the flour comes from, and most importantly, the physical medication. You are heading to Beirut, uh, arriving on Monday, so you're traveling this weekend. What are you hoping to accomplish when you get there? Well, number one, I can't wait to get there because I want uh, I want to make sure first that uh, the people are getting the help that was intended for them to get. I want to make sure the people that deserve it the most get it, and that's very important for me, and that's very important for me. So it's important to send a message to Canadians that uh, the help and the donations that they're giving to that particular cause is getting to those people. And that's the most important point. So I want to be, I'm going to be on the ground exactly where it happened and visiting families, visiting businesses that got affected, impacted, and talking to people that receive help from humanitarian coalition, that's the organization that all of us are donating to, to make sure that most organizations are getting that help that the people need the most and is to the hand of the right people and at the right percentage that we're sending. You had uh, said to me when we last spoke that that was one of your biggest concerns, the corruption within the government. So we're seeing uh, an exodus on the part of many involved in the government, the collapse of it. Is that going to help at least get the money straight to the people who need it? Absolutely, will, And it will send a lot of uh, confidence for, for Canadians to donate more. And uh, hopefully what I care about the most is 
understanding that these people are being helped properly, and I would be doing because I'm, a, as you know, I'm in the restaurant business. I will do a feed the hungry event, uh, and I'll be proud to put the Canadian flag on the truck. So the people, the Lebanese Canadian and the Lebanese themselves and the Canadian here feel our love and the love of Canadian that we're sending to them. And hopefully more Canadians seeing how much we're impacting the people in Lebanon these days when they, we, they need us the most. That will move people to donate more and it'll make us feel good that we're not helping a government. We're not helping anyone except the children on the ground, the families on the ground that need the most. What does the pandemic, what kind of impact does that have on everyone's ability to help and to survive this? Well, it's a crazy impact. Here we're, we don't know how to go to a restaurant. We do not even look at each other when we walk by each other. We avoid each other. And there they're actually attached to each other, protesting and uh, helping each other carrying food boxes and helping each other carrying mattresses to furnish schools for people to sleep in. I think the... Uh, effect of coronavirus became minimal comparing to what they saw, 4,000 people injured. And they're not realizing that because yesterday was announced that 3,000 cases jumped up so high immediately, the amount of cases of corona that it's in Lebanon, and they're going to pay another price there because their hospitals are already full and they have short supply of medication. So that all said sums it up that more help is needed and that we know where our money is going and our donations coming going is very, very important. And in a country like Lebanon, the only way you do that is hands-on. This is the strongest message we can send to people to feel confident to donate. Tell me very quickly before we say goodbye, the spirit of the people of Beirut, what keeps them alive and optimistic? Well, their love to their country and their belief on the international community that they will not leave them alone. They keep rebuilding. That spirit is sometimes is a great thing, but sometimes is a curse because we keep rebuilding. They always want to rebuild. They will always rebuild. But sometimes they rebuild on the wrong foundation, and this time the international community should help them build on the proper foundation. They will always be fun. They will always be happy. They want to rebuild. They're always excited to do something new. And most importantly, they help each other. In the streets of Beirut today, people are walking to clean other people's apartment that they've never met them. And that's the Lebanese spirit to help each other, and that's very important. And you exemplify that. Mohamed Faki, thank you so much for joining us on the feed and a safe journey to Beirut. You'll be there on Monday, and we appreciate your time this weekend on the feed. I'm thankful for you shedding a light on this, and thank you very much for all what you do. Time for our first break. When we come back, tech purchase tips for back to school and math and fun all in the same sentence. Stick around. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. With school almost upon us, some students may want to get a jump on the lesson plan. Afua Ba with Making Math Fun. 
Less than a month before kids head back to school, parents are concerned, or some parents at least, that their kids may not be ready to get back into that learning rhythm. So joining me to chat today is an associate professor with York's Faculty of Education, uh, Tina Rapke, and she has tips on how to help kids prepare mentally before they get back into the classroom. Tina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It is our pleasure, of course, and we've been talking education for a little while now, of course, now that uh, we know that kids will be going back to school. But some parents are concerned because they've been uh, out of school for a while. So um, first off, I've been hearing about the terms summer slide and COVID slide. So can you help me understand what that means and how it relates to kids? So summer slide or summer loss is uh, something that people talk about in terms of kids losing ground over the summer. So in terms of, it's often talked about in terms of math and literacy. And one of the biggest things for me being a math educator is actually the loss that occurs in math is greater than in literacy. Not that literacy isn't important, but math sees greater loss or greater grounds in math skills. So I know for me, you know, just being out of school when back in the day when I would be out of school for about two months, um, it was a bit difficult for me getting back into that sort of math learning rhythm. But uh, kids this year in particular might have a little bit more difficulty considering they've been out of school for uh, five months now. Yeah, there's going to be, I think what we need to focus on, because there's definitely going to be, people need to be thinking about loss and, um, and some of the slide. But I think what we need to focus on is how we're going to support these kids when they come back. Because if we think about math and fundamental math, the subtraction, addition, multiplication, those kinds of things, we know from research that kids learn this gradually over time. So it's like brushing your teeth. You need to brush your teeth every day. But unfortunately, a lot of kids haven't had this, like you said, for the last five months. Absolutely. Okay, so then helping parents get uh, their kids back into that rhythm, helping prepare their minds again to absorb um, math skills once again, what are some tips that you can provide parents? So one of the things that uh, I can provide is to, to focus on mental math. That's now one of the big items in the new curriculum. And so what that means and what that looks like at home is to actually just do a mental math question together, right? Whether you're doing 17 minus 9 or you're doing a multiplication question, but talk out loud with your kids and get them to share how they're actually solving those questions and then share your solution with them as well. So do a lot of math talk. Okay, good math talk. All right, so that's tip number one. Any other uh, sort of uh, handy tips that we can give parents out there? So the other thing is, is just math is everywhere. So if you can um, just play some board games with them, right, some card games, you can play I Spy or Go Fish with a little twist where you say, you know, um, I Spy, two cards that are next together that add up to 13. So just these little games and card games, you can, you can look up a whole bunch of different dice games. But the big thing is just to talk math and then, and then, don't tell them that you're not a math person. Like, really think about the attitude in math and, and really support them in, in developing a positive relationship with math. The attitude in math, I think, is a big one for me because <laughs> I look at math and I'm like, oh, you know what, let's just pass it over to my friend there that <laughs> knows a little bit better. But um, I think p- kids can pick up on that very quickly if, they're, if they feel that you're anxious in math. They are certainly not going to, you know, want to tackle that math problem themselves. Yeah, one of the things that we found in research is that 
parents are um, one of the larger one of the largest causes of math anxiety. So unfortunately, if you say that you're not a math person, your child may think that um, since you weren't a math person, then they don't really have a chance because maybe they don't have this um, this fake math gene that people are are talking about. I think even just just doing some baking with them, right? Actually, just get your child to read, put a little challenge on it, and just get your child. That's your child's the only one that can read the recipe, right? Or even talking about like, hey, you know, we're making hash browns. If all of us get two hash browns, how many hash browns are we going to get? And for sure, I think that we should allow children to count on their hands. There's absolutely nothing wrong with counting on your hands and counting up and counting down when they're doing subtraction or addition questions. Also share whatever strategies you're doing, um, but definitely don't stop them from counting on their fingers. Okay, and then also to hearing that maybe if they get a sort of a math problem wrong, it isn't necessarily a bad thing. What the, it should be adjusted is maybe helping them to solve the problem in general, not just uh, sort of getting the final answer is the end-all, be-all. Well, and it's rethinking how we think about mistakes too, right? Mm-hmm. So it's thinking about mistakes are really great opportunities to learn. So we've made the mistake, and then now we have to think about why that mistake happened, right? And think through that whole pro- that whole process, and see what we did, what we were doing that didn't work out, and then we change it with something else. So it's really looking at mistakes as a learn as an opportunity to learn. So really reconfiguring the way that we think about that. Absolutely. Okay. And then any in general, any maybe one or two, any reading tips to help uh, kids get back into that rhythm in particular. I think with anything else, um, we have to follow what kids enjoy and really listen to them, right, whether we're in math or any other um, discipline. And so I think one of the great things that we can do is we can actually um, allow and support kids to choose their own things that they're going to be reading about. And then also, too, we know that there's going to be this component of digital learning, especially if some parents might not be bringing their kids back into the classroom. They're going to be learning um, in front of their computers. Um, Could that impact their ability to get back into that school rhythm, and especially with learning math? Um, And if so, is there anything that maybe you can say to help parents if they are facing that particular scenario? So that's a very challenging scenario, especially in math, since we know that um, that we need a lot of math talk in classrooms. So that means kids talking about problems and comparing and analyzing the different solution strategies that they've used. So um, I'm hoping that in the online in the online context, kids will actually still be able to talk that way with each other. But again, that's why it's so important that parents talk to their kids about math. Even just saying, you know, tell me how you did this problem, right? Even getting them to talk about it is uh, is going to help kids out more than, you know, more than we can imagine. And just in general, do you think maybe kids are, are now ready to go back to school after this sort of uh, five-month period off? <laughs> I think they'll be excited to see their friends, right, and to make those social connections. Um, but with anything else, we really need to think about the kids and we really need to sit back and listen to what we need to do to support them. Absolutely. And then finally, where can uh, parents go for more tips and especially maybe just general info to help their kids or to help prepare their kids getting back into school? 
So one of the great things I did when um, the COVID lockdown first happened was I was working with TDSB, one of the largest school divisions, and we actually worked on a project where we created videos for parents to use at home around mental math. So basically, you just go to the website. If you just Google TDSB family math, um, the website should come up. And then the way that you use the website is you just read out the mental math question, and it goes um, per grade range. Uh, you think about it with your child and then you can just watch the videos and all of those mental mastery strategies are made visible based on um, the best research that we have. Awesome. That means uh, parents even now can access these tools and maybe even just spend uh, just a couple of minutes, uh, a couple of days per week to help prepare their kids for class this September. Yeah, we want to make sure that we don't we don't overextend people, right? So because math is learned gradually over time, these fundamental skills. So it's important to just do it, you know, 10 minutes at a time at most um, and just a few times a week. Perfect. Okay. Awesome. All right. Um, helping kids uh, gradually get into the learning rhythm before they start school in September. Uh, lots of tips here to help parents uh, help their kids and make sure that they're successful uh, when they're back in the classroom. All right. Speaking today with Professor Tina Rapke, an associate professor in York's Faculty of Education. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks a lot for having me. This year, back to school may include in-class and remote learning. Jim Lang next with Tech Shopping Tips. Well, as we like to say around here, safety is the new normal as we deal with COVID-19 in the York region, the GTA. And a big part of that is making sure your kids and your family are safe, looking ahead to school in the fall. Because school, as we know it, has changed forever. To talk more about it, thrilled to be speaking with a technology and travel journalist who does so much great work keeping us informed and really on top of everything going on, Winston C. Winston, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. I mean, I'm, I have one daughter going into second year university, one into grade 12, and both of their requirements are very different when it comes to technology. And I'm finding that I assume a lot of parents, depending on what grade your child is in, have to adapt the technology to what the school's going to have them do. Absolutely. And I think that's a great place to start. One of the tips that I have is to take a look at the school and what the requirements are. So if your child is going into university, for example, most universities have a published list of the minimum technology requirements. Some more creative uh, programs might require that you have a Mac, for example, whereas other programs might be more heavy on uh, word processing and spreadsheets. So you might want to go with the PC. So uh, think about what kind of technology that you might need before you go out uh, to purchase it. Now, I always think about budget as a concern for so many families, and they might think, oh, I need to get the best of everything for my child, that even though you want to get the best for your child, sometimes maybe just a mid-range thing would be more than enough for what they need. Absolutely. There's such a range of technology nowadays, from entry-level tablets where you could purchase a simple keyboard attachment that gives you almost like laptop uh, abilities, or you can go with something more mid-range, something like uh, the Dell XPS, which is something that just came out recently, uh, packed in an 11-inch form factor that gives you the full computing power, but without necessarily the full price tag. That's something to think about. But there's also a lot that you can do without spending too much money. Um, optimizing your at-home setup, I think, is really important. Just keeping things simple, 
speeding up your computer. Uh, don't overdo it with too much to distract you. Uh, and, and just seat yourself near a window as well. I think lighting is really important. People often overlook that. Honestly, Winston, at one point in the spring, I was doing some work from home. My wife, both the kids doing school, and it was a real drain in the Wi-Fi. I hear things about Wi-Fi boosters. Do they work, and can it help a family when you have multiple people doing work at home? Well, I'll name two different products that work quite well. One is called Google Wi-Fi. It's actually now called the Google Nest Wi-Fi, if you are looking for that. The other one, which is a competitor, is called Eero, and it's made by, uh, it's actually partnered with Amazon. And both products create what they call a mesh network. So if you're in a house, uh, or if you happen to be working in your backyard uh, and you need access to a stronger connection, uh, you can seat yourself closer to multiple different Wi-Fi hotspots, and it uses the, the three different hotspots, three or more, to create a mesh network, and it strengthens the speed of your connection. So that's a great place to start, especially if you have multiple kids who are, and, and you know, mom and dad, for example, who are on Zoom calls. These are all quite bandwidth-heavy activities, and you want to think about how you're optimizing your internet connection. And we know some people don't have such great connection. This is a great place to start if you want to optimize that. Speaking with Winston C., technology and travel journalist on the feed as we take a look at what's to come in the fall. And I always think about keeping away from distractions. I find the tip I have is if I'm trying to do work from home and I don't want distractions, I flip my phone over so I don't look at it. And then if I want a break or go get a drink or something, then I'll check the phone so it's it's not staring at me. What are other things we can do as a parent to make sure our kids who are doing studying at home are in a sort of good work environment uh, environment without things sort of distracting them? Well, I like your tip with just kind of going old school and turning your phone upside down. There are some apps that can help you along the way. Uh, if you're an Android user, if you're an iPhone user, both operating systems have a uh, screen time uh, well, digital well-being management tool where you can go in and you can delegate how much time you want to uh, allocate for each app. So if you know you're killing a lot of time on YouTube or on Facebook or Instagram, uh, TikTok even, you can limit the amount of time that the app will that the phone will let you use said app, and after that amount of time has elapsed, it'll give you a little pop-up that says, hey, maybe it's a good opportunity to put it down or put it away and focus on something that might be a little bit more productive. The other thing that I would also say is get a good pair of noise-canceling headphones, especially with more people at home nowadays, and we're all kind of working in close quarters. It's a good idea to have those headphones that cut out the ambient noise around you. Um, Sony makes a great pair of headphones headphones now that actually have Google Assistant built right in. And uh, a great new feature that Google Assistant has is called the Family Bell. And Family Bell Gym is fantastic because if you're a student and you're used to following a schedule and you know you have a, a bell that rings between periods or a bell to signal that it's time to take a break or to have a lunch break, you can actually simulate that at home and you can replicate that with your kids so that you can follow somewhat of a schedule and, 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 and to replicate some sort of normalcy. Oh, I love the idea of the family bell. I think that's brilliant. And it does. It almost rewards the kids. Oh, the bell's went off. I can have a snack. Oh, the bell's gone off. It's time for lunch. So, the, the, And even if they're deep into work, oh, it's break time. And then it's sort of a mental trigger. Exactly. It could be a trigger to focus on studying or it could be a trigger to take a break. Um, you know, even as adults, we focus so much on working, we forget to go eat lunch or we forget to go for a walk around the block. So this can help you with that. 
the one thing I'm intrigued about Winston is I know the kids have said some of their teachers are good when they're doing their Zoom classes. Others they find a little boring. They find it difficult to stay awake and pay attention. How do the kids or even adults fight the fatigue when maybe the person at the other end of the video isn't that compelling? Well, that's uh, <laughs> that is definitely something so many of us you know have to have to tackle right now. Zoom fatigue, and the the kind of one thing to counter that I would say is to take your eyes off the screen. Go old school and get a printer. Believe it or not, many of us don't have printers anymore at home. And often what I like to do is just print out, if I need to read something, if I need to, you know, do some old-fashioned work, I, I'll just print it out and do it then. That way you're giving your eyes a break from the screen. Um, that is something that often will will trigger fatigue. Uh, many people have those blue light blocking glasses now because we are staring at our screens for so long. And often on our laptops as well, you can go into your display settings, and some laptops like the Mac, like iPhone, actually have uh, a setting for that kind of fatigue where it turns down the level of blue light that's being emitted from oh. the screen. So take a look at your computer and see if you can uh, can turn that feature on because that might um, be able to kind of prolong the amount of time that you can look at a screen without getting uh, fatigued. Some computers call that night mode. Okay, one last thing I want to do, because I'm loving this, Winston, is I've seen some people get it, and I want to get your opinion. It's like a little mini tripod to put your iPhone or your Android, so when you're doing a Zoom, you're not just leaning against your laptop screen, but it's up a little bit. It seems to give you just a better uh, framing. Am, am I crazy about that? Is that as good as I think it is? I think it's a great idea. It could be for your smartphone. Uh, you can go on Amazon and you can find a plethora of different tripods for your smartphone, your tablet, uh, even your laptop. I think your ergonomics, that's something that's really important to think about. Uh, that's also another tip that I have. If you can, uh, on a laptop, for example, connect it to a monitor where you can adjust the level so that you can seat yourself with your, with your, your spine straight up. You know, so many of us are hunched over our yeah, laptop, yeah. and that can definitely take a toll um, on the ergonomics of, of your at-home setup. He is Winston C. You can uh, follow him and get information on his website, winstoncsih.com. I know you're a great follow on social media. For people who want to follow you on Twitter or Instagram, how can they get a hold of you, Winston? Well, you can find me on all socials uh, at Winston C. Winston C. Winston, thank you so much for joining us and educating me and the listeners. really appreciate it. All the best. Thanks so much. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Technology has also transformed our workplace. Tina Cortez with the industry trends. It goes without saying that the pandemic changed how and where we work. Michelle Scarborough is the managing partner at BDC Capital, and she joins us next on The Feed to share the trends she spotted in the tech industry. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Hi, great to be here. So what are you noticing? Can you give us sort of the big picture? Well, <laughs> I think the big picture everybody knows, our whole lives turned upside down during a, a pandemic, and, and right now we're kind of coming out the other side of that, but we're coming out the other side of that with an entirely new viewpoint on the world and the entire world has changed. You know, digital transformation that was beginning, let's call it in January and February, expedited through the uh, the crisis. And we're seeing, you know, everything from obviously the move to mobile where people are working from home to new ways to deliver education and training in an online environment and a complete change in our personal lives as well. How we interact uh, with other businesses and how we interact with each other is completely 
uh, change. So complete seat change in, in the way things are, are moving. But I think, you know, a change for the good, we're certainly seeing technology companies across the country uh, really step up in all different aspects, both in B2B, so business to business and business to consumer. Banking, of course, has also changed and the way in which we are seeing and delivering healthcare. So uh, an entirely new seat change, but, but great opportunities for technology companies and people, you know, that are embracing embracing the digital transformation and, and taking hold of what's before us. So would you characterize this as a forced transformation? Well, you know, a lot of these things are already at play, right? A lot of the sharing economy was already here. A lot of the decentralized workforces were happening. There was a um, movement towards more e-commerce. E-commerce has been alive and well for a long time, as you've seen with Shopify and some of these, you know, Amazon, of course. So I think it's been coming. What's happened, though, is it got expedited. So things that we were already starting to dabble in a little bit here and there were really expedited as we all had to move home, we all had to take stock, and then we all had to kind of recalibrate, both from a business perspective, how are we going to operate our businesses in the world in light of the fact that we're not actually physically going in and, and doing the work next to each other, the change had started to happen. We just saw it accelerate. So we're now months into this change, this pivot in the workplace. In general terms, how did companies do? It, You know, I think it depends on the company. So in my world, I work mostly with technology. Well, I work all with technology enterprise. And those companies met the challenge head on and have come out the other side of that doing quite well. Some of them having taken a little longer than others to get back, depending on the market they were serving. If they were serving the retail industry or the the hospitality or tra- uh, travel industry, then they were ta- they're taking a little bit longer to come back. But overall, we've seen, and I'll say this, but we've seen a seat change in leadership as well. We saw a lot of progress. I think where we've, companies have been hit the hardest, obviously, is in the sectors that I've just mentioned in retail and so on. Those are taking the, the longest time to come back. But what we've seen there also is a need and a desire to embed technologies to try to figure out how they can do things differently as well in an online environment in addition to their um, bricks-and-mortar locations. Now, you said some are coming back, but there are those who are not going to make it. Why do you think they did not succeed? Well, you know, again, it's hard to say why companies succeed or why they don't succeed. Oftentimes, you know, we look to the fundamentals of the business. Is the business fundamentally sound? Did the company have enough cash on the balance sheet to withstand a crisis? Now, this, of course, is a bit of an anomaly. Nobody would have expected this. But does the company have enough money on the balance sheet such that if there is a downturn, if there is something that's coming up, are they able to manage through that because they've put enough, they've got enough capital in hand, either they've raised it or they've got it on the balance sheet? And what are they doing to manage themselves efficiently and effectively? How are they managing their workforce? What this has also done is it's ta- it's given everybody a look inside of their own organization to say, okay, so what are we doing well? What can we systematize? make more efficient, increase our productivity around, and they're focusing on those areas. And those are the companies that are thriving out of this as opposed to some of the companies that are not. And how did tech startups across the country support already existing companies? It's interesting because, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a company called Procedure Flow in um, St. John's. 
Procedure Flow is an interesting business because they actually have a technology that allows for increasing productivity. It allows workers in an online environment to figure out the workplace processes and then to systematize workflow. So this is a company that was able to, in an online environment, work with their customers and enable those customers to move their employees as they went home onto a digital platform and to be able to then help those employees continue to do their work. And a lot of these companies that are customers of Procedure Floor, you know, contact centers, data centers, call centers, and so on. And so the tools that they provided allowed that com- those companies to stay in business and to continue to do their work in an online environment versus having to have all those people sitting in a call center or in a contact center. So that's one example. Kite would be another example, again, different um, uh, sector, but Kite is in the education sector and what they did and what they do is they take skilled workers that might be sales professionals in another organization, another sector altogether, and they help them through online training to become sales professionals for technology companies, to use their sales skills and to enhance their sales skills so that they can sell with other companies to kind of create a new opportunity for themselves. And so Kite also was able to see a huge increase in their ability to improve the lives of individuals that might have been out of work because their company, you know, didn't make it and they had to lay everybody off and so on, reskill them, retool them, and allow them to find other work in, um, in technology enterprises across the country. If you were to leave companies with one piece of advice in terms of where do they go from here, what do you want to say to them? I think I would say to them, identify what your unique value proposition is what unique asset you bring to your business and to your customer, focus there and deliver that very, very well. Good advice. Michelle Scarborough, Managing Partner, BDC Capital. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Great. Thanks for having me. When we return, canines with careers bringing comfort and joy to those in need. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region. Welcome back. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. Our next stop takes us to the St. John Ambulance Therapy Dog Program and how it offers companionship for those in need. Galit Solomon goes for a walk with this one. Joining me today is Marilyn Wong and Mr. Darcy from the St. John Ambulance Therapy Dog Program. Marilyn and Darcy, thank you both for making the time to speak with us today. Thank you for having us. And, of course, we should clarify uh, that Mr. Darcy is your dog, right? He's a therapy dog. Yes, yes, he's a therapy dog. He's my own dog, and he is silly boy at home but wonderful when he's working as a therapy dog. (laughs) Wonderful. That's great. So let's begin with the program itself. What is the St. John Ambulance Therapy Dog Program, and how does it help? Well, the the therapy dog program began in June 1992 in Peterborough, Ontario, but it's now across Canada, and the mandate is for us to visit and bring smiles, joy, and love, and comfort with my dog, our dogs, to the sick, the elderly, and the lonely. We love it, and the program has actually expanded beyond the original mandate to visit schools and universities, colleges, community centers, children's centers, airports, 
as well as the main focus, hospitals and senior residences and care facilities. That's, that's fantastic. So, so what breed of a dog is uh, Mr. Darcy? He's an Ontario breed from Port Hope called Ganaraskin. It's not an officially recognized breed yet because that process is very long and onerous, but they are going through that process, I understand. So he's a mix of Poodle, Bichon, Miniature Schnauzer, and English Cocker Spaniel, and he has joy and love in his heart for oh, everybody. That's wonderful. That's great. I'm sure temper- temperament probably um, factors into the types of dogs that are chosen. So, so tell us a little bit about that, and maybe we can start with Mr. Darcy's temperament and why he's so loved. <laughs> well, he is a very, very gentle, observant boy, and as most dogs are, very sensitive uh, to everybody's emotions, right? And he is this that way and he actually passed evaluation for the therapy dog program when he was 19 months and I thought he was not going to make it because he was a barky boy and a crazy puppy and everything but as soon as he was in the room for the evaluation he totally focused and performed all the uh, activities that are required in order to pass and then now that we've been visiting since 2012 when he works he is totally focused Mm. on every person that he meets and we can maybe go into a room with 20 people and they're calling out to him because he's the rock star. <laughs> I'm just there to hold the leash. <laughs> and he looks at them, nods kind of, and he goes one at a time to each person. And that's what we find with most of the therapy dogs. They really focus in on the individuals and that's what's very important. And the connection between the handler, we're called handlers, or the volunteers and our dogs is really important because they need to be able to respond mm-hmm. to us quickly if anything should happen, right? Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. And, of course, COVID-19 has had an impact on all of us, no doubt, changing the way that we've used, we're used to living our lives. Uh, how has this pandemic changed what you do uh, at the program? Well, the, the program is totally on a pause, P-A-U-S-E, uh, <laughs> since March. So we actually cannot do any physical visits uh, except the uh, St. John Ambulance Provincial Task Force has approved window waves and virtual visits at this time. And, and that came about because we found that our volunteers and their dogs were missing their visits so much mm. and routines that they were doing all the time. So they'd go for walks past the facilities and see people mm. and they'd wave. Right? And that perked the dogs up and perked the volunteers up. So we're adjusting to that by continuing with um, virtual visits where possible, and that requires having someone at the facility to um, to manage things at their end, so it's not always possible because they're really overwhelmed with work. Fantastic. Donations, uh, are they accepted? St. John accepts donations definitely because it is a charity, mm-hmm. and none of us, we are all volunteers, and we do this because we love what we do. We love our dogs and doing things with our dogs. And who doesn't want to bring more smiles and comfort to people, right? So the uh, any donations would go towards helping us getting our uniforms, leashes for the dogs. And, and going forward, we don't know what else is going to happen with changes to the program. So with, as you know, the pandemic closing down so many things, everything had to stop. And so, but bills still need to be paid, right? Right. So the donations would help keep the program vibrant. And this is across Canada. Fantastic. Marilyn and Mr. Darcy, thank you both so much for your time today. This has been a great conversation. 
Oh, thank you very much. I could talk forever, right? <laughs> Same here. <laughs> I'm passionate about the program and, and how many of us are. It's our therapy, too. So thank you for That's having That's wonderful. Us. Thank you. Take care. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.